Thank you for listening to this lunchtime talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's senior curator of prints, drawings and photographs, Julie Robinson, introduces the display, Diane Arbus, American Portraits. Okay, welcome everyone. My name's Julie Robinson. I'm the senior curator of prints, drawings and photographs at the Gallery. And it's a pleasure to see such a large crowd of people at this exhibition for this talk. So I'll introduce this exhibition uh, to you and talk specifically about the works by Diane Arbus that are on this wall here. Um, but I guess the crowd that we have today does indicate something <coughs> of the stature of this exhibition and the stature of Arbus's work because what we have here is the work of Diane Arbus, who's um, a very significant uh, American and world photographer of the 20th century. And here, her, in an exhibition that's been curated by the National Gallery of Australia by Anne O'Hare, we have her work in context with other really significant uh, American photographers working in a similar documentary tradition to her. So they include people who were her immediate predecessor, you know, came immediately before her, those who were working alongside her at the same time, and those that she influenced when they came after her. Um, and this exhibition is really one that could be seen if the work, you know, anywhere in the world. It stands up to um, exhibitions everywhere. I've, I've mentioned in a previous talk that I gave that two years ago when I was in New York, the Met at the Met Broyer had a um, very important uh, Diane Arbus show that people were just flocking to. And you'll be pleased to know that many of the images in this exhibition were also in that Met show. And today, these works that I'm going to talk about here on this wall are currently on display in a major exhibition at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. So this is the status of exhibition we have here. Okay, um, Dean Arbus actually had a reasonably short career as a photographer, but her works made a powerful impact. And here, as I said, we, we have her in context with other photographers and in this iteration of the exhibition, we have decided to include Diane's work all the way through <coughs> the exhibition. So you will see, and her works roughly follow, follow a chronological um, path. You'll see her early works in the first room, and then these works, and you go on and you go on. But one of the things I just did want to point out to you right at the start is when you're looking at her works in context with other photographers, one easy way to um, orientate yourself and recognise her works, if, you, if, if not by the images, is by the white frames. So the National Gallery works by artists are shown in white frames. And for this showing in Adelaide, we've been really fortunate to add additional works. So we've added five works from the private collection of James Darling, now plus one work from the Art Gallery of South Australia's collection. They're not in white frames, so uh, apart from one of them. So, you know, it's not fail-safe, but it is a way to orientate yourself through the exhibition. 
Artisan images can be very confronting and uncomfortable. And she often photographed those living on the fringes of society. Her photographs are not without controversy, but yet they're underpinned by an empathy with the sitters. And really, the way she was photographing people indicated her incredible curiosity about the world. Not just about the world, but about people, about individual people, and the way um, individuals inhabit their lives. That's sort of like the, the underpinning of her works in this exhibition. You can't talk about Arbus's photographs without talking about her life. Um, particularly her upbringing, because it had such a bearing on the view that she, her worldview, and the way she um, turned that into her photographic practice. So she was born in New York in 1923 into a wealthy Jewish family. Um, her parents uh, and family owned uh, a major department store there, Russick's, which had started off selling furs and moved into women's clothing. Um, so it's an incredibly wealthy family that she was brought up in. And as a result, she had a very sheltered upbringing. She was very um, protected from the realities of life. To give you an example, and some people would have heard this when I spoke to the guides, there were three children in the family. Deanne was the uh, middle child. And they, that family had three nannies, obviously one per child, two maids, a cook and a chauffeur. And that was her world. Interestingly though, with all of this uh, support in the home, um, her own parents were somewhat distanced from her. So she grew up in this, this bubble of an existence in her childhood and until her adulthood. And then when she was 18, but I mean, I think though you could say she always had a bit of a rebellious streak in her, despite this, this upbringing, but she didn't quite know uh, what the real world was like. But when she was 18, she married her childhood sweetheart, Alan Arbus, despite her parents not being that pleased with that choice of a husband. They felt that he wasn't good enough for her. But uh, she insisted and, um, Together and just after they married, he gave her a camera. This was the first camera that she ever had. And um, in that period, she didn't take many photographs, but what they did is they became successful fashion photographers. They worked as a couple. They worked initially for her um, parents' store, and then they did a lot of fashion shoots for the magazines of the day, for Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and so on. <coughs> And really, it was Alan who took the photographs, and Deanne was the one who sort of arranged <coughs> the shoot and did the art directing. Um, she, she came to hate that. I think very early on she hated that. And she talks about in fashion how the people, uh, but you know, it was so artificial, and the people were not wearing their own clothes, and there was nothing meaningful about it. So in 1956, she just had had enough and said to Alan, I've had it, I'm not doing it anymore. And that, that actually marked the beginning of her real photographic career, where she wanted to take her own photographs. 
and uh, pursue her own unique vision. It's interesting, there's, um, I mean, she had taken, as I said, she had taken photographs before 1956, and there's an, a brilliant example on display in that first, in the first room of this uh, exhibition that you must look at, which is a self-portrait from 1945 when she was pregnant. It was more of a, a personal photograph that she took to send to her husband, who was away at the time while she was pregnant. Um, but really, her uh, um, her practice per se started in 1956, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art has her archives. And interestingly, uh, the, all the negatives, all the contact sheets, and so on. And interestingly, there's a roll of film and a contact sheet from 1956, and she's numbered at number one, and that was the beginning. And then all of her subsequent rolls of films were numbered after that. Um, what else can I tell you about her? In terms of her personal life, she had two daughters, uh, Doon, um, who was the one she was pregnant with in 1945, and Amy, who was born in 1954. They are now the people responsible for her estate and for um, managing her affairs after her death, because uh, she died at a young age of 48 in 1971. So between 1956 and when she died in 1971, she, her photographic career um, took off to, to a certain extent. She took photographs for herself. She was also interested, and you'll see a lot throughout the exhibition, in magazine work still, but not fashion photographs, editorial work for magazines. And she occasionally tried to work in that way. Um, she, and it was sort of, she didn't get a lot of attention, public attention in this period when she was a photographer and that was not that uncommon at that time. You will, we'll talk more about it as the talk goes on but she didn't really exhibit much apart from about being included in one exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in 1967. So really, her reputation as a photographer came after her death. And her death was tragic. She committed suicide in 1971. And I think that um, also has also uh, affected the way we look at her work. What I want to talk a little bit about today are these four works that stand out in the exhibition. Um, well, there's a number that are this scale and they stand out as more, perhaps more significant works and certainly Deanne considered them significant works and printed them up at this size for that reason. So here in this little space, we've got these works by Deanne here, we've got a group of works by Deanne over there and we have in this room also works by William Klein and Lisette Modell. There's a sense of um, perhaps street photography happening here where people, photographers are going out on the street taking photographs of people they see on the street. But really that tradition of street photography was one of anonymous, uh, the photographer trying to be anonymous. Uh, artists sort of perhaps met people on the street but she took, she went to their homes or she interacted with them and it was this very important relationship that she built up with people. 
So she moves away from street photography and really her significance is in changing the way portrait photography is considered. She moved away from portrait photography being about making people look beautiful and happy. She wanted people, she wanted to show the real person. Um, in this room, the uh, wall text, the room text is referred to, uh, has the title, The Gap Between Intention and Effect. And that comes to the crux of her photographic practice where it's a quote from her where she talks about the way people go out into the world, the clothes they wear, the way they want to be perceived, and yet flips it and as the photographer or as any of us meet someone in the world, the way we see, uh, she said, the moment you see someone, you, you see their flaws, you see beyond what they want to show to the world. And she's hoping that with her camera, she captures that sort of essence. And part of that too is her fascination with difference. And we come to the twins um, being one of the uh, most well-known, uh, uh, probably you could say iconic photos that she has. It's about sameness, but it's also about difference. And her interest, she was interested in twins right throughout her career, in particularly identical twins because of this apparent sameness but underpinning it was her understanding of people being so different to each other. And she was quite um, a thoughtful person. She was a person who wrote down a lot of her ideas and a lot of thoughts about what she wanted to photograph. But there's this fascinating quote that she wrote in a high school essay, and it's about difference. And it, it rings true for all of her work. She said, there are and have been and will be an infinite number of things on earth. Individuals all different, all wanting different things, all knowing different things, all loving different things, all looking different. Everything that has been on earth has been different from any other thing. That is what I love, the differentness, the uniqueness of all things and the importance of life. I see something that seems wonderful. I see the divineness in ordinary things. And that's just a quite an um, incredible quote that she wrote, as, as I said, as a high school student. Uh, it underpins her philosophy and that brings us to this idea of twins, the identical twins, but the difference that she is trying to draw out in these two girls. As a photographer, she um, was roamed around the streets looking for subjects. She um, did a lot of research, actually, on this subject matter. And so for twins, in this year, in 1966, she somehow found out about a Christmas party for twins and triplets, which was being held in Roselle in New Jersey and also managed to get herself invited and accepted there. So she went along to this sort of quite local sort of event and managed to take quite a few photographs of twins, not just these two twins, uh, this is Kathleen and Colleen Wade, but she took other sets of twins as well. And after the talk, you might get an opportunity to look in the showcase where you see 
a contact sheet which shows, right in the middle there, um, shows the various shots that she took of this pair of twins, but also um, a number of other twins. What is interesting when you look at the contact sheet and you look at this finished printed work is that this is the work that she chose to print up. And I think in this she, you know, and commentators have uh, commented that she managed to capture some otherworldly presence about them. They seem uh, perhaps ghostly, you know, there's something, there's something there. There's also something there in the, the expressions on their faces in that one, one twin looks are quite serious, could be interpreted as looking quite menacing, and the other one is quite welcoming and smiling and innocent. Is it the good twin and the bad twin? Is it good and evil in the world? These are questions. Um, the actual twins, Kathleen and Colleen Wade, have talked about this experience. Um, you'll love to see the photo of them. Um, you can pass that around. This is them uh, in recent years. They don't remember. Do you want to pass that around? They don't remember this photograph being taken. Um, their parents vaguely did. Their father recalls that um, he's always considered this one of the worst photographs he's ever seen of the thing. Um, they were shocked when it became such a famous image and people started bringing them up about it. Um, but, but actually the twins themselves, that's what I was going to get to, are quite ordinary, like what's remarked upon is how ordinary they are. They're quietly spoken, just live ordinary lives. There's not the evil twin and the nice twin, they're just ordinary people and yet um, Arbus was able to create this amazing image. This image became so important uh, for representing Arbus after her death because uh, also in the showcase here you will see a book and it's called The Aperture Monograph. And you'll see that, that uh, this image is on the cover of that book. That book is one of the most, um, uh, what would you call it, popular photography books of all time. It was first published in 1972 uh, at the time of a, um, so after she died in 1971, her daughter and a friend, Marvin Israel, decided that they would create an exhibition of her work and this uh, monograph, this book, was the catalogue for that exhibition. That exhibition travelled all around America, all around Europe, all around Australia. It came here to this institution in the mid-1970s. That catalogue has been in continuous print since 1972. You can still go out and buy a copy today. So that image has always remained on the cover of that catalogue and has just entered popular consciousness. Um, it's also, some people have pointed out to me that this image was used in the film, The Shining, so the image of twins was used for um, a sequence of a ghostly twins in The Shining film.
I might just also mention at this stage the format of her works. This square format is something that she started working with in 1962 when she purchased a particular camera, a Rolleiflex camera. So when you look at the very early works at the start of this exhibition from 1961, you'll see that they're sort of more like a vertical format. That was from the 35mm camera she was using. But in 1962, she, as I said, she got this Rolleiflex camera which uh, worked in a square format and then even though she changed cameras over time, she still worked in a square format. She preferred cameras that worked that way. The other thing about this camera was that instead of with the 35mm camera, you, she would have been putting the camera up to her face to take the photograph. With this camera, she was able to have the camera down and just look through the viewfinder here. The camera's more at waist height which meant that she could have this greater rapport with the people she was photographing. So, to another work on this wall, I'm just watching the time. Yeah, I'll have it. This is another one that's a terrific work on this wall. It's a family on their lawn one Sunday in Westchester, New York, from 1968. Now, there's a fascinating story behind this. Well, there's a couple of fascinating stories behind this image. Um, firstly, it, it reveals the way she worked. So one way of finding her subject matter was to do research on competitions, events, you know, parties for twins, etc. The other way she might have found her subject matter was just bumping into someone on the street. So the woman in this photograph, she ran into her in a bookstore in New York and was struck by her appearance and, um, and approached her and asked her if she could photograph her. Now I'll just read you what um, Deanna said. Oh yeah. So she said, she was describing this person in a letter to a friend about the meeting in the bookstore. She said, she is about 35 with terribly blonde hair and enormously eyelashed and booted and probably married to a dress manufacturer or restaurateur. And I said, I wanted to photograph her with her husband and children. So she suggested I wait till warm weather so I can do it around the pool, exclamation mark. Last weekend it wasn't warm weather, but the next day maybe. They are a fascinating family. And then she says, I think all families are creepy in a way. <laughs> and I think this goes back to her own upbringing as well and her own family situation and how uh, thinking about what is a normal family, what, what makes family life. And this image, so she was thinking about families in general at this time, and this image and another famous image of a family were created for an article which appears uh, in the showcase. I've got a copy of it here. So, you can pass this around as well two American families, where she's contrasting two types of American families. This um, sort of poorer family from the Bronx here contrasted with this middle class family around a swimming pool. 
And yet, ironically, there's something about the closeness of this family as compared to the way she's chosen to depict uh, this family here, all separate from each other. And when um, also, and you see it in the magazine, she loved the fact that this, you know, um, scene in the uh, magazine dissects the image and just dissects the couple. This, in fact, was her favourite photograph of all of her photographs. That's the one she loved the most. I'll let you pass that one around. It was a result of seven hours of shooting to take this photograph. And that was something else that um, is typical of her practice in that to get the photograph she wants, she would stay as long as it took. And um, in the first room, you'll see the image of the, the young boy holding the toy hand grenade, and he's got that exasperated, deranged look on his face. He was the boy that she came, into, uh, came across in the park and started taking his photo, and she took more photos and more photos, and I think he was probably thinking, when is this lady ever going to stop taking photographs of me? What more do I have to do? Um, but she stayed until she got the image that she wanted. And the same here, seven hours of shooting to get this image. I also read recently she did portraits, she could be commissioned for portraits, and um, one family that commissioned a portrait of their daughter, Deanne stayed for the whole weekend. So, <laughs> you have it. Here too on this wall are two other images, the young man in curlers at home on West 20th Street, New York, uh, in 1966, and at the end here, a boy with a straw hat waiting to march in a pro-war parade in New York in 1967. And in some ways, um, sorry, the, both of these figures are outsiders. So remember, she was drawn to marginalised people, people on the outside, but they're at extremes of um, the outsider uh, zone, I guess, where you have someone very conservative and pro-war, pro-Vietnam War down one end, to um, this transvestite at home who would, you know, always get um, picked on and so on. He had a, a very different life. But artists respected people. Um, she really respected outsiders. She respected the fact that they went out in the world and owned their difference. They didn't shy away from it, and she wanted to depict that, and she respected them for that. So in some ways, that even though they're at opposite ends of the political social spectrum, she was looking at these two um, men in the same way. The, um, the the man down the end in the straw hat, or he's almost well, he's a boy really, um, is one of the few times she didn't really photograph, uh, get into politics or social issues. Um, however, this, this makes the image because he is supposedly pro-war, pro he's got an American flag, he's got bomb Hanoi, God bless America, support our boys, etc. And yet, he's got no joy. His, his expression is one that's blank, lonely, perhaps fearful. And so there's this um, 
she managed to get an article in Art Forum, the first on her work, the first on photography in that magazine with uh, our familiar boy on the front. And as a result of this, it, it started to change the way photography was viewed in art circles. So here you had photography on the front of this art journal, not just any photographer, Arbus. On the strength of this, she was then invited to participate in, to participate in the Venice Biennale of 1972 as part of the American Pavilion where they were showing six um, artists. And she was the first photographer to be exhibited in the Venice Biennale. Obviously she died in 1971, but she was still included posthumously in the Venice Biennale. So these, this portfolio then, you know, led to uh, that her photographs being seen in, in, on this scale and in this intensity as works of art. They moved from the sphere of um, photography connected to magazines and perhaps on the fringes of art to becoming the centre stage in world art. And then with her death and the subsequent exhibition, she has remained uh, centre stage in photography and art. I might leave it there, I've spoken for a long time, sorry. But if anyone has any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Yes. Yeah, the square image um, you were talking about there, because the, the, the times was 1970s, like late 60s. Is that, so this was, is this the old, oh, it sort of reminds me of an old record. So when you think about oh, the yes. vinyl, you know, you sort of think about the square of the vinyl about that time as well. Yes, yes. Good pick up. Good pick up. I think they were all Yes. Yes. Yes, great. Yes. Did she print her own work or did she get somebody else to do it? Good question. So the works in the white frames here from the National Gallery are very special in that she printed them herself. So in her lifetime, she did print her own work. She was um, very particular and tried out not particular, but she tried out a lot of experimentation when she was printing to get it how she wanted. After her death, like some images like this, um, they were printed up uh, through her estate, getting one of her students to print up her works. Neil Selkirk was the student that has printed up her work since. But the National Gallery's um, group of 30, they have 36 photographs by Arbus, were purchased um, in a lovely connection by Ian North, who was uh, curator of photography at the National Gallery then. And he, um, with the support of James Mollison, insisted that they buy vintage prints printed by the artist and not get later prints. And um, that is a great uh, achievement. <coughs>